Outer space is a place so extreme, it's hard for our minds to even imagine it. Out in the vacuum of space, there's no air to breathe, no gravity to hold you down, and a constant barrage of radiation. And just to get there, you need to travel fast enough to escape Earth's gravity. If you want to stay in space for more than just a few moments, you'll need to be going at least 17,500 miles per hour. It's jaw-droppingly beautiful and also, you know, pretty daunting. And I remember looking out the overhead windows of the space shuttle using a mirror on my knee, and I could see the waves crashing on the beach beneath us, you know, many thousands of feet below. And I thought, this is an out-of-body experience. I can't believe I'm actually doing this. (laughs) I'm Scott Solomon. In this episode, we're testing the limits of human abilities by leaving our wild world behind and heading out into space with physician, explorer, and former NASA astronaut, Scott Parazinski. The part of our planet where life exists is known as the biosphere. Compared to the size of the Earth, the biosphere is actually a very thin zone. It ranges from the deepest parts of the sea to a few miles up into the atmosphere. All people, and most other living things, live somewhere in the middle of this zone, where conditions tend to be the most suitable. But we learn a lot by exploring the edges of the biosphere, where conditions can just barely support even the most hardy organisms. And by venturing beyond the biosphere, by leaving Earth and traveling into space, we can really test the limits of what our bodies are capable of. There aren't many people alive today who know more about being in extreme environments than Scott Parazinski. He's an emergency medical doctor who has climbed some of the highest mountains on Earth. He's also a scuba diver, pilot, rock climber, and luge athlete. And to top it all off, he's flown on five missions to space as a NASA astronaut and completed seven spacewalks. I can't think of anyone better to speak with about what it's like to work in extreme environments on Earth and in space, and what we can learn from going there. Scott Parazinski, welcome to Wild World. Great to be part of Wild World. Let's get going. So, let's go back to November 3rd, 1994. You're sitting aboard the space shuttle Atlantis, about to be launched into space for the very first time. What are you thinking and feeling? Heart is racing out of my chest and uh, just hoping I don't screw up. <laughs> um, yeah, no, there, there's a, an incredible amount of anticipation, adrenaline, thrill of the moment, having grown up in the, in the space age, wanting to, to one day become an astronaut, to then be on the launch pad and sitting there on the launch pad, anticipating, you know, finally being in space, uh, you know, my boyhood dreams coming to fruition. It was, it was incredible. But there is a considerable amount of trepidation just in terms of wanting to do your very, very best because if you don't perform well, if, you, if you're not feeling great, what have you, perhaps you won't get a chance to do it again. Mm-hmm. So not knowing how I would feel, if I would have motion sickness or any other problems up there on my first mission, uh, I had some nerves. But not necessarily concerned for 
my own personal safety. I knew that everything that had could be done to make spaceflight safe had been done, and uh, our crew is ready, and and so was I. So walk me through what happens in those moments. You're you're hearing a countdown. You're feeling the rockets begin to fire. What what's that like? What 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 happens? Well, you end up uh, getting buttoned into the uh, the special about two and a half hours before the launch, and it's actually quite boring sitting there on your back. Your your legs are above your heart level, so you're you start to note that your bladder is getting uh, you know quite full, and uh, you're you're appreciative of the fact that you're wearing a diaper. Um, <laughs> but uh, as the the clock ticks down, you come out of that final nine minute hold, t minus nine minutes. Things get pretty serious. Uh, we'd been joking around and and trying to keep it lighthearted up until that point, but uh, at this point, coming out of the nine-minute hold, we realized that there's a pretty good likelihood we're actually going to fly in space today, and things get quite serious. The switch throws that we're making are have significant impact, and the butterflies start to really flitter around the the cockpit there, and uh, it all really gets serious around 10 seconds before the launch, the water deluge system beneath the shuttle comes alive and, and it's an enormous amount of water that gets flooded beneath the shuttle to make sure that the, the rocket engines don't basically tear the launch tower apart as we leave the planet. Hmm. And then six seconds before the launch, the three main engines of the shuttle throttle up and there's an incredible sense of vibration and, and uh, you know there's some real major activity going on underneath you, 195 feet below the crew compartment. And then at T0, the white solid rocket motors, motors of the space shuttle throttle up and you lurch you know, off of the planet. You go from 1G laying on your back to three Gs almost instantaneously. Mm. And you feel this incredible sense of acceleration, sort of like the the steepest roller coaster you've ever been on in your entire life, except that that acceleration lasts for eight and a half minutes. And you're going from zero miles an hour to 17,500 miles an hour orbital velocity in, in just that short period of time. And it's, you know, you're, you're giddy with uh, the thrill of the, the acceleration and the fact that you're leaving the planet the shuttle sort of rolls onto its back. And I remember looking out the overhead windows of the space shuttle using a mirror on my knee, and I could see the waves crashing on the beach beneath us, you know, many thousands of feet below. And I thought, this is an out-of-body experience. I can't believe I'm actually doing this. (laughs) And then uh, after two minutes into the flight, the, the solid rocket motors separate. There's a little bit of a deceleration there, but you continue to accelerate faster and faster. And then at main engine cutoff or Miko, you just start to, f- to float. And it, there's this sense of, you know, freedom that it gives you to being, you know, unweighted from gravity and, and to look out the forward windows of the shuttle and see the curvature of the earth beneath you. It's just a life-changing experience. Yeah. And one that you, I'm sure, had been dreaming about your whole life and imagining and, of course, training for. You said that it's like an out-of-body experience. I mean, how do, how, how do you process it in the moment? Is it, Are you kind of telling yourself, pinching yourself, reminding yourself that it's real? I, I, I remember uh, my face hurt when I got up into space and I realized that the reason it hurt is because I was grinning the entire uh, launch. <laughs> um, and uh, it, it really is something that you can't fully prepare yourself for even with 
hundreds of hours in simulators and talking to many people who had gone before you in centrifuges and weightless environment training facilities, you know, water tanks and parabolic flight, all these different ways in which we prepare ourselves for spaceflight. The human experience of it, the visceral reaction you'll have is something that uh, no IMAX movie, no, no simulator could ever replicate. Yeah. And the extremes, like you said, going from, you know, 1G, Earth gravity, to, to 3Gs, 3Gs. Mm-hmm. almost immediately. And, you know, how many Gs do you get up to before, uh, before it's all done? So on the space shuttle, we were limited to 3Gs because of the aerosurfaces and the, the tiles of the shuttle are, are quite delicate. And so we would accelerate to 3Gs uh, on the launch, and that would be the limit. Of course, the Soyuz capsules and Dragon, SpaceX Dragon and other you know, capsule-type spacecraft can accelerate much faster. And then you go from that, you know, intense high G to zero G. And and that transition must be really hard for your brain to process as well, right? <laughs> yeah. Even in our parabolic flight uh, simulations, it's sort of a gradual tapering off of the gravitational pull on your body. But yeah, it's it's just with a just a, a snap, you go from three Gs to to weightless. Hmm. And and you notice, you look over to your side and you see cables starting to float around. The procedure books that we use to, to get up into space, they start to float around. And you, you feel like this gorilla that had been sitting on your chest for the last eight and a half minutes, it, you know, you're, you're completely free. And you, you feel like you're lurching out of your seat, even though you're very securely snugged down into your, your seat harness. Hmm. And then at some point you release that harness. <laughs> And, and and what's that like? I mean, what what? how do you feel for the very first time when you're actually experiencing that weightlessness? You feel like an Olympic gymnast or a diver, you have this ability to move about with incredible grace, to be able to move in pure three-dimensional space, to be able to flip upside down, to spin and pirouette and, you know, do whatever kind of uh, gymnastic maneuver without the encumbrance of you know, your body weight, it's its really amazing. And you have superhuman strength. You can move large objects around very carefully. So they, they obviously have inertia. So, you know, if you, if you move a massive object, unless you're not very, very careful, it could actually get out of your control. So you have to be very, very precise in the way that you move things. But it's really a wonderful sense of freedom to be able to move in that way. One of my favorite experiences aboard the space shuttle was to actually – flip upside down, and typically our our overhead windows of the space shuttle would be pointing towards Earth. So you could actually do this mental transformation, and the, the space shuttle became a glass-bottom boat. And as you're flying over the Earth, you're just you're looking down at your planet through a glass-bottom boat, and it's just this amazing perspective that you get. Absolutely. And it just sounds like a ton of fun. I mean, honestly. <laughs> we, we like to tell everyone that it's really, really hard work, and it is, <laughs> but uh, there are moments when you just can't help but pinch yourself and be appreciative of the fact that you're one of the ones that gets actually gets paid to, to go fly in space. Yeah. Wow. And so, as you said, you're, you're getting paid to fly in space because you're doing a job. At some point, I guess you can't just do the pirouettes all the time. You got <laughs> You got to get some work done. This is Wild World. I'm Scott Solomon, and I'm speaking with former NASA astronaut Scott Parazinski. When we come back, we'll hear about some of the fascinating and important work that Scott did during his five missions to outer space. 
If you want to see our wild world for yourself, one of the best ways is with Lindblad Expeditions. Discovery is in the Lindblad DNA. They've been exploring the most amazing places on the planet for more than 50 years. They have the most advanced fleet of expedition ships in the world, and their trips create unprecedented opportunities for guests. Visit expeditions.com to see where in our wild world you'd like to explore next. Welcome back. You're listening to Wild World. I'm Scott Solomon, and my guest is veteran astronaut and explorer Scott Parazinski. So what are some of the science projects that you were involved in in your, your career with NASA? Yeah, the reason we go to space is to improve the quality of life here on Earth and also to understand our origins within the solar system and within the universe. So it's a very profound scope of work, I would say. But ultimately, what we're trying to do is to do science that will benefit all of humanity. And so the, the work spanned from the life sciences, looking at the aging process. When we go into space, it, it's like an accelerated aging, believe it or not. Our muscles and bones don't have to resist gravity, so they weaken. Our heart muscle doesn't have to pump against a gravity gradient, so it too actually goes on holiday. And it's a, potentially a, a real threat if you don't exercise while you're up there. Our inner ear has a different environment, so you know, balance disorders are, are a threat. Our immune function is also, for some reason, suppressed to a degree. So there are a number of different aspects of our well-being that are impacted by going into space. So we can use spaceflight as a laboratory to test countermeasures for aging well. So, for example, countermeasures to osteoporosis that affects all of us as we age, but in particular postmenopausal women, if we can develop exercise countermeasures and pharmaceuticals that can help astronauts in space, we can help people here on Earth. We can study technologies to improve plant growth, to support you know, hydroponic plant growth and improve you know, crop production around the world. We can study high-tech materials for firefighters and our military you know, warfighters study combustion physics, all sorts of material science experiments that we've done. And obviously, looking at our environment, looking at global environmental change monitoring that we can track using our camera systems, looking back at, on Earth, and looking further beyond, looking to the heavens, obviously, the Hubble Space Telescope and other assets looking you know, beyond. How did we get here? What comes next? So... Lots of different types of science that we, we conduct. And in addition to being an astronaut, you're also a physician. And that uh, probably allowed you to do some some science that maybe you wouldn't have otherwise been able to do in orbit, right? A absolutely. One of my, my most cherished memories of being an astronaut was actually a life sciences mission that involved Senator John Glenn. He was the very first American to orbit the Earth back in the early 60s. He later became a United States senator, spent, spent four terms as a, a U.S. senator, but he came back at age 77, and it, it wasn't just a joyride. In fact, there's a lot of wonderful science that took place to essentially understand that aging process I was just talking about. But even for a younger astronaut, like I was at the time, <laughs> this is a, quite a few years ago, I would experience these aging changes over the course of a two-week flight in space. 
well, how would it affect a 77-year-old astronaut? And how would John Glenn's physiology changes differ from me and the rest of my crewmates? And so that was a really wonderful suite of experiments that we studied immune function, sleep, muscle function, cardiovascular physiology uh, over the course of our mission. So one of the other really exciting but also challenging aspects of, of being an astronaut that you got to participate in was doing an EVA or a mm-hmm. spacewalk. So what are some of the ways that you have to prepare for doing a spacewalk? It's the ultimate astronaut experience, I think, to go outside of your spacecraft in your own personal spaceship. You may not realize it, but engineered around the astronaut is a spacecraft. It obviously is in the form of a human being that with a, the spacewalking astronaut inside, but everything that you need to sustain life to obviously provide oxygen and remove carbon dioxide, but also to withstand the the elements, the, the huge temperature extremes, the risk of orbital debris, to have the ability to work at night, you need you know lights, cameras, tools, a jet backpack. It's it's really an extraordinary human experience to be out there. But we have to do really challenging work in a very demanding environment with a a suit that's actually 13 layers thick. There are pressure layers, there are thermal layers, uh, and and Kevlar outer coating, of course. And so even a simple task of grabbing onto a power tool, for example, takes energy and endurance. And so I I would always tell younger astronauts that I was training that the best way to really be fit for going out on a spacewalk is to you know, go to the rock climbing gym because that really tests all of your upper body strength. It also develops endurance in the, the hand and forearm muscles, which are really taxing for a, a spacewalker. But also we, we get into a large training pool. It's called the Sonny Carter Neutral Buoyancy Laboratory. It's down in Clear Lake, not too far from here. It's 40 feet deep, 101 feet wide and 202 feet in length. And we have inside this facility a full mock-up of the International Space Station. So we can practice all the details of the the tasks that we'll be doing up in space, whether it's to install a new module, to repair a faulty piece of gear. We, we go through that several times before we get up into space. Unfortunately, we can't anticipate all the things that might break. And you know, I certainly have had experiences in my life, in my professional career, where Things were definitely way off script, but based on the the breadth of our training, we were able to get the job done. So you talk about all the extensive training that goes into to preparing for a spacewalk. It's another thing to actually do it. What is it like that, you know, the first time you did it, when you open that airlock, and I was going to say step out, but I guess that's not quite the... Float out. Float out. Yeah. You, float, you float out of the airlock, and you're out on your own in space. What What is that experience like? It's jaw-droppingly beautiful and also, you know, pretty daunting. Uh, My first spacewalk was docked to the Russian space station Mir. Uh, It was a beautiful night sky when I floated out. I asked my crewmates to keep the shuttle's payload bay lights off so that I could let my eyes dark accommodate and actually see the star fields as I floated out. And it was just really, really beautiful doing that. But uh, it was kind of a, an unfortunate set of circumstances. But unfortunately, the technicians who had prepared the uh, 
the safety tether reels that are sort of our connection to the spacecraft when we're outside on a spacewalk, they had used the wrong lubricant. So as I was getting set up to, to start my work outside, my safety tether reel wouldn't retract. So I had about 10 or 15 feet of this steel braid cable kind of floating up and around over my head. And everyone in mission control was terrified that we'd get tied up and you know, we, either we would you know, make it difficult for ourselves to get back inside or we would damage some other equipment. So we ended up having to store that faulty safety tether reel. And I ended up using a couple of my waist tethers, almost like an ice climber climbing up an ice cliff to move around the outside of the space shuttle space station complex. And it worked great. But it was a pretty high pucker factor <laughs> moment because I thought within the first 10 minutes of my very first spacewalk, we were going to have to shut it down. But it, it really is an amazing perspective when you're just looking through a thin visor out into the enormity of the universe. It's, it's one thing to look through a, a plate glass window and see, you know, a, a cone, a, a sliver of what's out there. But when you're out on a spacewalk, everywhere you look is the enormity of the universe, and it's, uh, it's really majestic. You're listening to Wild World. Coming up, we'll hear about Scott Parazinski's journey toward becoming an astronaut and some of his other adventures in extreme environments here on Earth. The Rice University Traveling Owls program offers exciting intellectual itineraries to destinations around the globe. Traveling Owls trips serve as a catalyst for lifelong learning and strengthen bonds between Rice University alumni and friends. You don't have to be a Rice alum to participate in Traveling Owls programs. Visit alumni.rice.edu slash travelingowls to see a list of upcoming trips. This is Wild World. I'm Scott Solomon. And my guest is astronaut, physician, and explorer, Scott Parazinski. So how old were you when you first dreamed about being an astronaut? I believe I was four or five years old when I first started seriously looking to uh, the space program and to the stars as uh, something that I'd like to do. My father worked on the Apollo program when I was very young, so I remember vividly at age seven, seeing the launch of Apollo 9 mm. uh, from Cocoa Beach. My, my dad had special seats uh, to see it from the Kennedy Space Center, but my mom and I watched the launch from the beach, and the cards were set at that point. I knew exactly what I wanted to do. I didn't know whether or not I'd actually be able to achieve it, but tenacity you know, pays off sometimes. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So... You had a very interesting childhood. Your family lived in, in a number of different places around the world. Um, I think your family moved to, to Senegal when right. you were in like junior high? I was 11 years old, yeah. yeah. So what was that like? That's a hard age for, for a kid to, to move to a new place, a very different place, I would imagine. What, what was it like for you? It was very difficult initially. And of course, I had done a little bit of travel prior to that. I think I had been uh, to Europe one time. So I knew that I wanted to travel. I loved traveling. We traveled quite a bit across the U.S., but the idea of going to West Africa, that sounded so exotic. And, and I had my good friends 
you know, that I didn't want to leave, you know, transitioning from sixth to seventh grade. So it was a, a pretty significant, you know, leap of faith that my, my parents took, but they were very adventurous as well and thought that it would be a great family adventure, and it turned out to be. You know, I, I think the opportunity to you know, see the world as I did uh, as a young person and also to appreciate that some of life's greatest lessons come from outside of the classroom. It's not just in the textbooks and the, you know, the chalkboard learning that we have, but it's the people that we meet and the opportunities that we take. That's something that I've carried with me my whole life. So you wrote in your book, The Sky Below, that, uh, that you feel home underwater. You feel it at home when you're in the water. And, and if I'm not mistaken, I think you learned to, to free dive when you were in Senegal at a, at a pretty young age. I, I did. I, I was very fortunate to have the opportunity on the weekends to, to go to Angor Island, just outside of Dakar, Senegal. And I was a fish. I was you know, snorkeling all day long. And then one weekend, I remember some French kids had just come back from a dive, and they had an extra set of twin eighty tanks. And I, I was asking questions, and they they strapped the pair of twin eighties on my back. And the only instruction I really received was, "Come up when you run out of air." Uh, <laughs> so not really the best instruction that I could have had. I, no. <laughs> uh, I, I didn't get bent, thankfully. But uh, as soon as I had the freedom to move in the water column and to get to the bottom. You know, things that I had only seen from the surface or for as far as I could free dive down, I was now able to get below all of it and, and get up close and personal to move in, in three dimensions, almost like an astronaut. It was really a, a life-changing experience. And the other thing, I was always glued to the set when uh, Jacques Cousteau and his specials were on. So that was a mm-hmm. big part of my childhood, too. And then at some point, your family moved uh, again to uh, to Beirut. My father's uh, job took us to the Middle East, not at the greatest time. But it was actually the beginning of the civil war in Lebanon. So we, we had about six months in Beirut before we had to evacuate. Things got a little too hot in, uh, in Lebanon. And we moved to Athens, Greece, where I spent most of my high school years, with exception of the first half of my senior year in high school when we were in Tehran, Iran, which is also a really bad time to be there because that was the beginning of the Islamic Revolution. So understandably, a lot of my friends uh, were convinced that my dad worked for the CIA or something like that because he always <laughs> ending up in these ter- terrible places at the at the wrong time. I think you wrote in your book that you arrived in, in Tehran something like a matter of just days before— uh, Martial law. Three yeah. days before martial law was declared. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So what kind of an impact did that have on you as a kid? Well, for me, I, I saw the onset of the, the Civil War in Beirut as, my gosh, I'm, I'm here living history. This is a, an incredible adventure. And I was, as most kids are, uh, fairly fearless. And I'm sure I terrified my mom because I, I was always wanting to go out and explore. And not a great time to be out exploring, of course, but I saw it as— uh, an amazing gift that I had to be able to to travel and also to be, you know, living in an adventure. Again, it was it was difficult having to pick up and move a couple of extra times there when we had to leave Beirut in the middle of the night. Basically, the store there's a, a tiny sort of international market kind of kitty corner to our apartment building in the middle of the night. A pipe bomb 
had been set to detonate. So all the windows in our apartment building were blown out. And my folks said, well, it's time to leave now. And so we, uh, we hightailed it to the, uh, the airport and we, we left. And I, I've never been back, actually. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And from there, you went back to Greece right. to, to finish high school? Yes. Uh, so I spent you know, three and a half years in, in Athens, Greece. And uh, then just the first half of my senior year was in Tehran. So then you come back to the the U.S. for uh, for college, right? You went off to uh, to Stanford and uh, would eventually also uh, go to Stanford for medical school, right? And so, uh, tell me a little bit about the time in medical school, learning about medicine, learning about the human body, but in the back of your mind, having this ultimate goal of of becoming an astronaut. I think growing up, I had the dual goals of becoming a physician and also becoming an astronaut. My grandfather, who who sadly uh, died before I was born, he was an eye surgeon, but he had had an aneurysm. And even my dad never got a chance to meet him, sadly. But um, the, the stories that I heard about him and my grandmother was a nurse in his clinic and, you know, just understanding the the benefit that, you know, healers have, obviously, in the lives of their patients, I, I really wanted to be a part of medicine. But I also recognized that they needed doctors in space one day and, and their science to be, life sciences needed to be done in space. The very first space shuttle class of astronauts hired in 1979 uh, included a number of physicians. So I put it all together. This is, this is my pathway to the stars. And, and thankfully, uh, I was in the right place at the right time. So how would you say that your medical training helped you to, to prepare for life as an astronaut? I think as a physician and also in particular an emergency physician, being able to manage the unknown. As an ER physician, you don't know who's coming through the door next. It could be a gunshot wound to the chest or it could be a sore throat. And you need to possess an enormous amount of uh, knowledge, but also be very flexible, be very observant, work well in a team environment because you can't know it all or do it all. And I think that generalist kind of perspective really helped me a lot as an astronaut. Also, I, I think just the understanding of you know, physiology in the extreme, that's really what spaceflight is. It's, it's taking the human body into a very, very foreign environment where there's an absence of gravity, there's a higher radiation flux. There are all sorts of different aspects to living and working in space, that generalist mindset and also intellectual curiosity really helped me a lot. You wrote in your book about how your your very first patient died shortly after you How's had, that for had, a statistic? Had saved yeah. him. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> an inauspicious beginning, I suppose. Yes, it sure was. Uh, how did that affect you? I, I, it was a really amazing preclinical experience that I had. Uh, it was my very first term at Stanford Medical School, and they had a, a rotation in emergency medicine, and we were able to spend time with the paramedics and uh, in follow-through on, on cases. And so I remember my very first night rotating with the paramedics, we went to George's house, and he was in a f- full code. So he was in full cardiac arrest, and I performed cardiopulmonary resuscitation, CPR on him. We were able to uh, shock him and resuscitate him and got him to the Stanford 
hospital emergency department. He coded again. I was there. I stayed with him and we were able to resuscitate him. We got him to the intensive care unit. And um, sadly, the following morning, he, he passed. But it, it was uh, quite traumatic and when I, f- I first learned of his passing because, first off, I was completely exhausted. I had been up most of the night with him. And I was also euphoric by the fact that we had actually saved his life. And I had been part of saving his life initially. But I, I came to terms with the fact that medicine can only go so far. And there is a time for all of us. And I was glad to at least tried to save his life. But, uh, you know, it also led me to understand that there, there are plenty of opportunities to, to do medicine better in the future. Now, while you were in medical school, you developed a uh, hobby that I think it's safe to say is unusual for <laughs> medical students, and, and that's the, the luge. Right. How, how did you get started uh, luging? <laughs> a complete fluke. Uh, there was a uh, wonderful athlete, Bonnie Warner, who was the top American finisher in the Sarajevo Winter Olympic Games, and she wanted to recruit other athletes to try out the sport of luge and to find other athletes that could help the U.S. team be more competitive in the future. And it was my 24th birthday, and I saw this flyer at the gym. Hey, come out and try try luge. Well, how do you do luge in sunny Palo Alto, California? Well, what they do is they find a steep road, set up some traffic cones, and they put some sleds on wheels, and you can navigate a slalom course of sorts down the steep hill. So that was part of the, the selection criteria. And then there's you know, physical fitness and agility drills that we were put through. And the top 10 finishers in this competition were then invited to go back to Lake Placid to try the sport out for real on ice. And so uh, I was selected to go do this, and I was able to convince Stanford Medical School to let me take off about four months of my clinical time frame to, uh, to go compete and train in the sport of luge. And it ended up being the next three winters that I, I did this leading up to the Calgary Winter Olympics in 1988. Now, luge is not the only uh, uh, sport that you've been involved in that some people would describe as a as an extreme sport or an adrenaline sport. Um, you got into to rock climbing at some point as well. And you wrote in your book that one of the scariest moments you ever had was, was rock climbing in Colorado. What, what happened? Yeah, I, I, rock climbing is a such an all-encompassing you know, physical as well as intellectual pursuit, and the rest of the world completely disappears when you're on a rock face. You know, it, it's a physical and and mental challenge. How do you get up this this face safely? And and so I, I ended up right before reporting for duty at NASA, I was climbing a pitch that I had done several times before, but I was lead climbing it. And uh, what that means is I was putting in protection as I was going up. What I didn't think through, as I should have, is that every time I had climbed it before, we had used what's called a top rope, where we set up a rope at the top, sort of like a pulley, and so that if you were to fall, you'd fall a foot or two, you'd get your bearings and continue on up. Unfortunately, this was the type of a route where there really weren't any cracks or, or bolts in which to put in protection. So I was up perhaps 30 or 40 feet without any protection. And I realized there was no place for me to put in 
a device, a cam or, or a nut or anything like that that would protect my fall. And the only way for me to get past this thing was to, to keep on going higher. And, and I remember I, I had incredibly sweaty palms at this point. My, my legs started to shake. We, we call it sewing machine leg, but you're, you're just, your adrenaline is going, your heart's racing, and you realize that the only way out of this thing, there's no down climbing. You couldn't climb to either side of the route. I had to keep on going up. And if I were to fall, it probably would have been fatal. So uh, it was a real wake-up call to me. I had let my situational awareness drop to the point where I could have really hurt myself. So from that point forward, I, I evaluated risk in a much more you know, rigorous way. So another aspect of your work in extreme environments has been at high elevations. You've done a, quite a bit of mountaineering, including an expedition to a very high elevation lake in the Andes. What were you doing there? I was invited to participate in an expedition to La Conquerbra Volcano, which is one of the uh, the highest lakes in the world. It's nearly 20,000 feet above sea level. And it's an environment that scientists think is akin to what Mars must have been like about three and a half billion years ago. So I was there with a group of scientists that were studying life in the extreme, extremophile life. So I was invited to, to join this uh, expedition both as a an astronaut. We were thinking to use this as an environment to train future Mars astronauts to do field research, but also as a mountaineer and as the team physician. And one of the things I got to do was actually to free dive in this somewhat caldera lake. And it was nearly zero degrees, you know, freezing temperature. And half of the lake was covered in ice and half of it was, was open water. So it was really a an otherworldly experience. Not the most enticing place to go for a swim. No, not so much. <laughs> <laughs> so you were free diving, so not yes, scuba diving. That's on that. right. Okay. Yeah. I see. How far down did you go? The the lake was, I think, max about ten feet. Okay. But what was interesting about it, there were actually mats of cyanobacteria, so this reddish uh, mat on the on the sandy floor of the lake, and we were able to collect some of that. And and biologists, of course, studied it, and it's it's really. Remarkable to think that everywhere we look on Earth, even in the most inhospitable places, life finds a way to thrive. Whether it's at the top of the Andes, uh, in Antarctica, deep in our oceans and geothermal vents, life finds a way to, uh, to hang on and, and even to, to thrive. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you had an injury soon after that, if I'm not mistaken. Is that, is that right? I, I did. Uh, well, it, I'm not sure I'd describe it as an injury as much as a result of, of that expedition. I ended up finding out that I had a hole in my heart called a patent foramen ovale or PFO. And as a result of being uh, in coach on a long flight home and also spending about three weeks at altitude, I had very you know, thick blood, uh, sludgy blood that created a clot in my heart, which ended up throwing a clot into my brain. And so I had a small stroke that took part of my peripheral vision as a result of that expedition. So I was very, very fortunate to have some amazing doctors, including my, my flight surgeons at NASA. And at, at UT Herman Hospital, they put me in hyperbaric oxygen. And thankfully, I don't have any residua from that event. And they ended up putting in a little seal in my heart, a catheter-based procedure. And I'm, I'm as good as new. 
<laughs> That's great. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Speaking of extreme environments, you were the first and you're still one of just a handful of people who have both been to space and also summited Mount Everest, the highest point on Earth. Yeah, it was really wonderful to to have those 30 minutes atop our planet. I had seen Mount Everest and, of course, the Himalayas from space, and it latched in my brain. I, I would really love to see what this looks like you know, with my own boot prints. So I had a this beautiful photograph of the summit of Mount Everest that I had taken from space over my desk for many, many years, and I, I was daydreaming about it. And finally, I had an opportunity to go climb the mountain, and uh, I— I went for it. So tell me about that first trip up, up Everest. It, it, you had some challenges. Lots of challenges. It's certainly the most physically demanding thing I've ever done, but also perhaps the most mentally taxing as well because there's so many voices in the back of your head saying, you know, this is really, really hard. Time to turn around. And it takes judgment and experience to know, well, this is – red line, but I, I still have reserve here. I can keep on going versus this is pathologic pain or whatever and time to turn around. So I, I was in really great shape on my summit push. This is uh, uh, May 19th, 2008. I remember the, the date quite well. And I was on my summit push arriving at Camp 3 on the side of Mount Everest at uh, 24,500 feet. And I'd had some low back pain that morning, but I, I cinched my, my waist harness as tightly as I could, sort of like a weight lifter's belt, and I was able to do the climb. But as soon as I released the pressure at high camp there, I was in excruciating pain, and I there's nothing I could do to get rid of it. And I was writhing in pain all through the night, even though I was trying to ice my back down and and rest as best I could. And I realized that that following morning, if I tried to go any higher in the mountain, I'd not only be risking my own safety, perhaps even my own life, but I'd be risking the the safety of my teammates who would have done everything that they could to support me and to get me down safely. So I had to turn my back on the summit, even though it was just 24 hours away over my shoulder. I, I had to, to limp on down. There's no way anyone can carry you down. It's either you're going to physically get yourself down, or you're going to become a, a permanent memorial on the side of Mount Everest. Yeah, I suppose that's good motivation. <laughs> yeah, it sure was. Yeah. But you were able to come back a second time. The, the next season, uh, I was able to, uh, to summit at uh, 4 a.m. local time on May 20th, just right prior to the sun rising on top of the world. And it was uh, such a, a, a wonderful moment in my life because I had to fight so hard for it. I think the things that we have to work the hardest for in life are the things that mean the most to us. And I'm, I'm sort of glad that I, I didn't summit my first time around because I, I really grew to appreciate the importance of tenacity and resilience. And, and anytime I face a, a really difficult challenge in my life now, I think back on the fact that I had to fight my way back up the side of Mount Everest again to finally stand atop of the world. I'm Scott Solomon, and you're listening to Wild World. My guest is physician, explorer, and NASA astronaut Scott Parazinski. In our final segment, we'll hear what being in space and other extreme environments has taught Scott about Earth and about us humans. 
I love to travel and experience new places. And I've had the great pleasure of joining several Rice Traveling Owls trips operated by Lindblad Expeditions. Each of these trips, from the Galapagos Islands to the Belize Barrier Reef, Baja California, and the Upper Amazon River, has been absolutely incredible. Lindblad Expeditions make nature and wildlife accessible to anyone. Visit alumni.rice.edu slash travelingowls or expeditions.com to learn more and to see where in our wild world you'd like to explore next. Welcome back. This is Wild World. I'm speaking with Scott Perezinski, who spent 17 years as a NASA astronaut. He's also a physician and explorer who has spent much of his career in extreme environments. Your final mission in space was in 2007 aboard the space shuttle Discovery. And while you were there, you had to do uh, an unplanned spacewalk, right? Normally, this is something, as you were talking about, you, you, you prepare Right. for a long time to do a spacewalk. So so what was it that uh, that caused you to have to do this unplanned spacewalk? Well, the the sneak peek is that actually orbital debris had damaged a solar panel aboard the International Space Station that we were trying to unfurl. So my buddy Doug Wheelock and I were out at the very tip of the space station on what we knew as the P6 Solar Array Truss, out at the very, very tip of the, the station, and we had bolted it all together. We had made it electrical connectors. And, and we thought that the hardest part of our mission had already been done. And uh, we could sort of coast the remainder of our mission. But as we floated into the airlock, our crewmates were commanding this large solar panel about 100 feet in length to unfurl. And it got stuck part way out. And this uh, apparent piece of orbital debris had, had nicked a steel braid cable, it had, had fouled it up and uh, essentially caused the solar panel to start to rip apart. And of course, we didn't know what this meant for the, the rest of our mission, whether or not we'd have to go out on an emergency spacewalk and throw away a billion dollar national asset, or if the brilliant people in mission control would come up with a plan to somehow repair this. And of course, it was the latter. It was sort of an Apollo 13 sort of evolution where people worked around the clock for 72 hours to develop a plan to get a spacewalking team out to the very tip of the station to cut out this piece of guide wire that had become frayed and had caused the rip. But then we had to actually put in other wires to stabilize it so that we could safely extend it to its full length. And I, I gave it probably a 25% chance of, of being successful. But miraculously, it worked perfectly the very first time. Doug Wheelock and I went back out, an emergency unscripted spacewalk, and uh, seven hours and 19 minutes out in the void, we were able to effect this repair with some amazing robotic arm flying by Stephanie Wilson and Dan Taney inside the space station and an amazing team in Mission Control Houston looking over our shoulders. But... Uh, it really was the best day on the job ever for me. And I think all of us who were a part of it would tell you that it was the greatest thing we were ever able to be a part of. You know, something that was so daunting when, when you first looked at it, but then NASA came through with this plan that made it almost look easy hmm. when it was all said and done. 
So you've done these incredible things, this, you know, spacewalk that, you know, was unscripted and, and, and unprepared for, you know, launched into space going 17,500 miles per hour, climbing Everest, scuba diving, flying planes. These are things that would scare most people. What what scares you? <laughs> um, well, I, I think that's an interesting question. I, I think going into an environment like that unprepared is the – uh, I, I guess the best answer I could give you, I, I, I wouldn't do any of those things if I, I weren't well prepared. Uh, I'm not, a, believe it or not, a risk taker. I'm a risk mitigator. So I, I, I like to understand the perils of where I'm going. And I think if you're, you're physically, mentally, technologically prepared to do the exploration, you can do it relatively safely. There, there's certain risks that you can't mitigate. On Mount Everest, you can't anticipate an avalanche, for example, but you can get up really, really early before the sun hits the mountain and minimize the likelihood that an avalanche is going to bury you. So you try and understand the risks as best as you can and to mitigate as many of them as possible. So you were describing the the feeling of being in space and looking back at the Earth, and particularly when you're out on a spacewalk with nothing between you and the cosmos but but that visor. How has being in space influenced your feelings about Earth and about space and the entire cosmos that we live in? I think every astronaut comes back at some level an environmentalist. You, you can't help but be awed by the beauty of our planet, the, just this iridescent, you know, brilliant blue that you see of our oceans. Our, our planet really should be called ocean rather than Earth. There's uh, 70% covered in water. And it's, it's magnificent. And, of course, a, a very paper-thin atmosphere above it. And then the enormity of the universe, the black, pitch blackness of space, darker than any you know, black that you've ever imagined, lit up by trillions and trillions of tiny little point sources of light. The stars don't twinkle in space, twinkle, twinkle, little star. We don't have an atmosphere between us and the stars when we're, when we're orbiting Earth. So it's magnificent, but also... You appreciate how fragile the planet is, and you can also see the scars that humanity is inflicting on the planet as well. You see jet contrails. You see bilge dumping in the oceans. You see deforestation. You see you know, traveling over the uh, over Siberia. You can see soot along the Trans-Siberian Railway. Hmm. You can see center pivot irrigation in North Africa, for example. You can see forest fires. The only unattractive aspect of our home planet from space are things that are created by humans. Nature is extraordinarily beautiful, but cities are gray and smoggy, and you can see them as more of a scar on the planet. So uh, I think the impact that spaceflight has on, on people is you know, to, to lead one to become a better steward of the planet. And uh, that's one of the reasons why I hope more and more people get the opportunity to one day fly in space. As a physician and an astronaut and someone who has climbed Everest and been to these other extreme environments, you have a unique perspective on the human body. What have all of these experiences taught you about the human body? I would say that the human body is extraordinarily adaptable. We can adapt ourselves to living and working underneath the oceans. We can live and work 
in the weightlessness of the International Space Station. We can live in partial gravity environments. We can travel to high altitudes and adapt our bodies to the thinning atmosphere there. So evolution has, has really you know, created a wonder in, in us human beings. And so with, with proper preparation, we can do amazing things. And I, the other thing that I would say is that by being explorers, it, it's actually forced us to become better innovators. A lot of the technologies that we developed to first send humans into space are now technologies we take for granted. The Holter monitor, the monitors that we use in, in intensive care units and in the operating rooms were actually initially designed to monitor astronauts on orbit. And so many other miniaturization of sensors and things that we use in healthcare hearken from the space program. So by sending explorers into extreme environments, we benefit because we have these new capabilities we can use you know, here at home. So what do you hope to see in terms of the future of space exploration? I'm really excited about the era that we're currently in, which involves many more people. I think space can and should be for all of us. Uh, it's still extremely expensive, but I think the, the costs are going to come down. And I, I'm really excited by the fact that some of the providers like Blue Origin are actually taking you know, citizens, not, not just multimillionaires and billionaires, but civilians who uh, are bringing back their life-changing stories and are very relatable and can share it with their communities. And I, I think as more and more of us get a chance to see and experience you know, those life changes, it, it will be good for the planet. What's next for you? Well, I'm, I'm really, really busy with technology innovation, and I'm, I'm an entrepreneur. Uh, I have a company called Fluidity Technologies that's involved in electric vertical takeoff and land aircraft development, as well as human-machine interfaces to be able to move more intuitively through physical and virtual space, as in like flying a drone or a surgical robot. So I'm really excited about leveraging my my experiences as a, an explorer and working in extreme environments and using that for healthcare and you know, paying it forward through technology innovation. Well, Scott Parazinski, thank you so much for sharing your amazing life experiences with us here on Wild World. Great to be with you. Thanks. That's it for this episode. To learn more about Scott Parazinski, check out his fabulous book, The Sky Below. You can also go to his website, parazinski.com, to see photos and stories from his time as a NASA astronaut and his other adventures. You can learn more about space science and exploration at nasa.gov. If you want to hear more episodes of Wild World, check out our website, wildworldshow.com, or you can get them wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please consider leaving a rating or review, and maybe tell a friend or two. This episode of Wild World was produced by Three Wire Creative. I'm Scott Solomon. Join me next time as we explore another part of our wild world. Next time on Wild World, we're venturing to the ends of the earth. Join me and my guest on a journey to a faraway land, on a mission to learn about what it's like in places much, much, much further away.